Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Y'all know the theme music, right? So, from WABE in Atlanta, broadcasting live from the Atlanta History Center, this is Closer Look. I am Rose Scott. I can't think of a better reason to have a quality conversation, talk about what does that look like? What should it look like? And right now in our nation, as we deal with the state of our democracy, this is the perfect time to have this conversation. Right now when we're talking about how we tell history, who we should tell history to, at what age should we tell the history to the person, this is the perfect conversation to have that. And I can't think of, the guests I have today are just outstanding. They're all way smarter than me, way smarter is why I picked them. And I hope that you all, as we always say, I don't, my job is not to tell you what to think or how to think, but just think about something. So that's what I hope your takeaway is for today. So it's a live broadcast. We are live all over the world, technically. So we want you to enjoy yourself. No heckling from the Atlanta City Council President, Doug Shipman. <laughs> I know how y'all get. Watch yourself. But I want to thank all of you who are in attendance today. And I also want to go ahead and bring out our guests because they are extraordinary. I'll read their bios in just a second. But I want to welcome from Georgia State University two outstanding professors, Professor Tiffany Player. <laughs> Professor Elizabeth West. And from Oglethorpe University, she's their Director of Diversity, Equity, and all that good stuff, Dr. Laura Renee Chandler. Now, even though we live, I'm still be the same rose. Someone said to me, you have all women. And I said, wait a minute. You would never say that if it was all men. <laughs> that person's in the audience. I'm not going to call them out. <laughs> because my boss is here and I want to have a job come Tuesday. But that's part of the whole conversation too, right? Who gets to tell stories, right? So let's all sit down. Let's talk about Juneteenth. Right. <laughs> Professor Player, I want to start with you because we had this conversation, wow, maybe a year ago and we were talking about Juneteenth and I remember asking you, what do you think people often get wrong about Juneteenth and what it really is and what really happened? Thank you for having me. Um, Juneteenth is a celebration, right? But it's a complicated celebration. 
The actual historical event was June 19, 1865, when Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, with more than 1,800 um, members of the Union Army, many of them who were U.S. colored troops, so African-American men who were serving to kind of liberate themselves and others from bondage. And they arrived in Galveston, Texas to um, kind of try to liberate those from bondage and let them know that um, slavery was over. And one of the things that is really important for us to remember about Juneteenth is that the enslaved people who heard this, you know, proclamation by General Granger were aware that the Civil War was, you know, had ended, that General Lee had um, surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in April 1865. So it's important for us to remember that Juneteenth comes more than two months after the Confederate Army surrendered in the Civil War. And that proclamation was issued to people who were held in bondage by those, for more than two months, by those who wanted to perpetuate the institution of slavery. And so I think that that's a really important thing for us to always keep in mind as we're kind of celebrating this important federal holiday now, as of last year, but celebrating this important moment in U.S. history and African-American history. It's always been incredibly complicated. Speaking of incredibly complicated, what was this, let's go back then to that time because I'm curious in terms of in Texas, why was Texas the outlier here? Texas was the westernmost Confederate state. And so as you know, there were people who were enslaving African-Americans who were actually taking them from states like Alabama, from states like Florida into Texas you know, to kind of try to perpetuate the institution of slavery. So that's a major reason why Texas was an outlier in this um, process and you know, was a place in which um, people were really trying to perpetuate the institution of slavery. And it took the U.S. government more than two months um, after that surrender at Appomattox Courthouse to have the forces to be able to um, enforce emancipation at the end of the Civil War. So let me ask you this. When did you, did you learn about this in school? No. Did you, <laughs> Dr. Chandler? I did not, no. Did you, Professor West? Anybody out there in the audience learn about this in school? No. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> Dr. Laura Renee Chandler. Now we're in this, this moment of how we should tell history, and especially when we talk to, let's say, elementary, or even middle school. Um, Juneteenth is the perfect example of why it's important to accurately tell history and to include everything and not be concerned so much about are we hurting someone's feelings? Um, so I, I think there are two really important points about Juneteenth that often get left out. So it's actually part of a 
much longer and broader tradition of um, people of African descent celebrating liberation and freedom and emancipation. So June 19th is important, um, but prior to that, January 1st of 1863, which is the actual date of the, um, that Lincoln uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, um, that many uh, uh, black communities would host watch services, right? They knew that freedom was coming. They knew that the proclamation was coming. African-Americans always knew that the Civil War was about them and it was about their status. And so celebrations of liber liberation and freedom within black communities actually start with that point of January 1st of 1863. There would be uh, gatherings, food, church services, pageants, parades, um, and then um, when we think more broadly, even within the African diaspora, uh, August 1st is an important point um, for liberation within Caribbean countries because that's the point where Britain um, uh, abolished slavery. And then um, uh, thinking also about um, February, the month of February. So many African-Americans would celebrate the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, and that's one of the reasons why um, uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson uh, initiated uh, um, Negro History Week mm -hmm. during, that, um, uh, during the month of February, which then became Black History Month, right? Um, so it's part of a, a much broader history of, of how we celebrate and think about liberation within, uh, within the African diaspora. Um, sort of echoing Dr. Player about the complicatedness of, the, of this history, um, if you've actually read the proclamation itself, so the order that was read by um, Union General Gordon Granger, it's a very brief uh, document, um, but it, it speaks to a, a number of things. So it, it explicitly uh, uh, calls into the, the, the quality of condition between enslaver, former enslavers and the formerly enslaved. And there are very few documents in American history that actually do that. Really? Yes. So it's, it says explicitly that after this point that the former enslaved and form, their former enslavers are equal, right, wow. in rights and in condition. Um, it also speaks to the anxiety that existed in the country about what freedom would mean for black people. So it sort of uh, in a futile manner tells African-Americans that they should stay on the plantations where they are, they should continue to work for wages, which was the last thing that they had in mind. That was the last thing that they wanted to do. Um, it also tells them that they are not free to run to uh, military checkpoints, uh, which is something that African-Americans had been doing throughout the war because, again, they knew that this was about their freedom and about their condition. Um, and it also speaks to the anxiety that African-Americans had um, about their condition because now they are free, they are celebrating, they want to claim their freedom, but they're still in an environment that is violently hostile to them. And so I think that is an important part of how we celebrate Juneteenth. It's a moment to recognize and embrace freedom and liberation and emancipation in its importance uh, for black people, but it's also a, a reminder of how much more work we have to do. Oh, Professor West, you have a mic now. Uh, yes, I think I'm good now. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the question as, as you um, articulated it, Rose, and, and that is um, the matter of why it's important to, um, to teach this. It, it's important because we need to recognize that there is no singular history. There, there are histories plural, and the story of this country is a story of multiplicities of experiences. And those experiences extend beyond 
uh, the perspective of the colonists who, uh, you know, who were able to defeat their mother country uh, and then create a nation. It is a story of all the other people uh, who were here and particularly uh, African Americans. So if we're going to tell our history, and that's our plural, meaning uh, the United States as a collective of indigenous people, of African Americans, of uh, you know, European Americans, of you know, the Chinese and Japanese who came later. Uh, that's the fullness of our history. And if we aren't willing to tell the fullness of the story, we should at least be honest and say, this is the single story of this nation, starting with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and that's all we want to tell. Oh. I, could, I could live with that, frankly. <laughs> really? Uh, you, I could live with it. I could live with it, Rose, for the very, uh, again, question, uh, uh, the question that you asked about how we learned about Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. I didn't need school to tell me about Juneteenth. I learned about Juneteenth in my own community. I learned my history in my own community. I learned about um, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming long before the DNA test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll stop there, but I... I no, no, I mean, hey. <laughs> Live show, I can't do nothing. <laughs> but, but I say that to make the point. And the holiday is important if we want to extend it and share it with the nation. But I want to emphasize that black people are sharing this holiday. This, this has always been our holiday. And, and I'm happy to share it. But, but I think it's important that we acknowledge uh, that it existed before uh, the validation of, of the federal government. Let me stay with you for a second, Professor West. Were you surprised then when the United States finally said, okay, Juneteenth will now be a, except for folk in South Dakota. I don't know what's going on in South Dakota. <laughs> they got some issues. They are not recognizing Juneteenth. I, Sheffield is here from Atlanta History Center. Do we need to take a caravan there? I don't know what's happening with South Dakota. <laughs> Most of the, all the states are recognizing Juneteenth except South Dakota. I, don't ask me why. We'll get them on the show. Uh, but were you surprised that finally now we have Juneteenth as a federal holiday? I wasn't surprised. Um, as I said, I'm excited about it. But in the history of the kind of repair that's needed in this country, uh, Juneteenth is low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Professor Player, let's talk then about the politics now of how we are now telling stories, whether it's through divisive concepts or CRT. Um, your thoughts just on now all of a sudden we're in this space where there's legislation being passed telling educators what they can teach how they should teach it, and at what age they should teach it, and what they should omit. Mm -hmm. Well, Juneteenth, I think, is an ideal 
opportunity for us to engage these issues because it's fundamentally about the institution of slavery and liberation and the attempts by some to continue the institution of slavery, right? To refuse to accept defeat. And Juneteenth has always been, as Professor West um, kind of mentioned, I mean, really an important part of a commemoration in African-American communities that has a really long tradition, um, as Professor Chandler um, mentioned. But one of the things that's really important for us to, you know, kind of consider as we're commemorating this holiday, I mean, I was surprised, actually, that um, this federal holiday was designated last year, but I wasn't surprised about the rise of um, opposition to critical race theory or the attempts to control what's being taught in the classroom. I mean, schools have, have become spaces where people can, and students especially, can ask questions and schools have been a, space, a safe space for um, students to be able to detackle difficult issues. And so I think kind of in many ways what's happening over the last couple of years is this um, kind of duality that's always been present in American history and society where we have some gains and opposition to issues of equality and diversity and equity. Because the more people ask questions, you know, and students, I mean, in my experience, the students have been really eager of all, you know, from all backgrounds to discuss these issues and to be able to learn the skills to sift through all of the noise, all of the information and misinformation that's out there. And so Juneteenth, can be an opportunity to really kind of dive deeply into it because you can't shy away from the fact that it's about the institution of slavery. It's not about states' rights, right? It's not about um, African-Americans um, not wanting um, liberation from the institution of slavery or the uneven um, ways in which the federal government has protected the rights of African-Americans. I mean, Juneteenth has all of that, mm -hmm. and it's always been an incredibly inclusive holiday, even when it was celebrated among African-American communities. It's been a place to reflect on the past, to think about the present, to honor ancestors, to imagine a future. I mean, and that is absolutely what we need to be doing um, in our own time. And so Juneteenth is ideal for that. The way you just presented that, but then when you talk to someone else, someone who's in opposition, and I had a state lawmaker tell me, Rose, I don't think that kids should be saddled with guilt and sin from the past. It's a direct quote. So it is. So Dr. Chan, I'll ask you then, what, what would be your response then to that state lawmaker? Yeah, I, I don't think that this history, and it really is our history, right? It's a collective history, that it, that it isn't about guilt or about making people feel bad about who they are, that it's a part of our collective legacy uh, within this country. And so if we wanna understand where we are today and who we are, we need to understand where we've come from and what has occurred in the past. Um, I really uh, appreciated some of the things that, that Dr. Player said. You know, I, um, 
it's interesting to me that we put so much emphasis on July the 4th, right, as a nation. Um, but when we think about who we are uh, as citizens, as a collective, um, that understanding actually is much more tied to the period uh, following the Civil War and emancipation, right? The Revolutionary War era really didn't answer the question of what it means to be a citizen. It didn't answer the question of uh, what, are your, what does the federal government owe to you as a citizen? Um, because there wasn't a federal government. It took us some time to figure that out. Um, it wasn't until the post-Civil War period that we were actually able to answer that question. Um, and, and the reason for that is because we now have 4.5 million formerly enslaved individuals. And, and the government has to figure out what are we going to do with these people? What are they owed? Um, and how are we, more importantly, how are we going to keep them safe? And how are we going to protect them? Because they were in an environment uh, that was violently hostile to them. And so, you know, our understanding of who we are actually comes from that moment. And, and so it's, it's interesting. You know, I would like to see us maybe, you know, find a way to connect Juneteenth and July the 4th, right? Um, because that, that's incredibly uh, key to who we are as, as citizens. And I, and I don't think people should be threatened by that. Professor West, your response to critics like the state lawmaker that said that to me, what would your response be? I would ask that if that's our starting point for thinking about what should be taught and what should not be taught, then we have to open it up to my feelings. <laughs> So, so I'm, you know, I try to be flexible. I'm, if, 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 that's, if that's the road we want to go down, it, you know, if I, if I have to silence my, my experience of history in this country uh, because it offends a certain sector of the population, um, let's just say I, I'm, I'm, I want to go with that. Well, I, I want the reciprocal. I want you then to understand that when I sat in a classroom as a child and had to hear that George Washington was the nation's hero, I was offended by that. And I had to struggle with that conflict. I had to struggle with the notion that July 4th comes around and I'm supposed to celebrate uh, you know, the anniversary of this nation that I'm supposed to celebrate these patriots who, you know, had no problem uh, with reconciling their major difference, which was slavery, uh, at my expense, at my ancestors' expense. Um, I'm, I'm offended by that. I'm hurt by that. I mean, I can use all these, uh, you know, emotional descriptives to talk about my reaction to that. So if we have just reduced history to a matter of what offends you, then I want you to think about what offends me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need a clap meter for you because you just... <laughs> <laughs> In Georgia, and divisive concepts means the law, Educators cannot teach that America is inherently racist or that a particular race is responsible for racism. That's a fact. I didn't make it up. Just sign into law. Uh, right, exactly. And 
I think as citizens, we have to think about what that means. Because again, uh, it means that we live in a society where we have uh, implemented uh, into law uh, the, um, you know, the right to silence the eels of the government, the, you know, the eels of our history. Um, but, but again, I go back to that previous point. Uh, if that's where we want to be, then I, you know, I again want to say, well, let's have a, let's have a level playing field. Um, you know, if we can't talk about racism, uh, then we can't talk about George Washington and the Patriots uh, because that's slanted. That's racist. Uh, you know, the, the very foundation of the documents that we honor were grounded in the idea of silencing, you know, the history of certain peoples, Native Americans and, and African Americans. So if we want to enact these laws, uh, let's, let's have a le level playing field. Um, and, and, and then we have to think about where we are after that. We're really at a point after that where we have no history. Mm -hmm. yeah. If everybody's got to be quiet and unoffended, we have no history. <laughs> Dr. Chandler, uh, your thoughts on not just here in Georgia, but many other state legislatures around the nation have passed some type of divisive concepts law. Yeah, so it, it's interesting that you mentioned South Dakota. I just came from there. That's where I moved from. That's and right. I, I taught at a state institution in South Dakota. Is this um, their way of getting back because you left? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, yes. And so, um, you know, I, I, I got out of there in time, but they actually passed. <laughs> That, that's really how I feel about it. Um, but, but they, you know, they, they passed legislation essentially dissolving all of the diversity offices uh, within the entire state. So there are no diversity offices in the state institutions. Really? Yes. Um, whoa, 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 in the state yeah, of South that's Dakota. That's a whole other sec. Let's, we got time. I know. I know. <laughs> My show. Uh, let's back up. Yes. How did, why? What, what was the, the, at the core of this decision? It, so it was a long process. It, it was many years of, of a march leading to that. It started with an intellectual diversity bill, um, which required state universities to keep track of the speakers that they were bringing to campus, and they had to be able to show that there was a equality in you know, the views. So if you're bringing progressive speakers, you have to bring an equal amount of conservative speakers. So it started, it started there. Um, it really picked up when the Trump administration uh, passed a, I think it was an executive order, basically banning trainings about diversity mm -hmm. or, or what they considered insensitive topics. Um, and then, you know, once the conversation about CRT happened, I mean, it just really threw it over, uh, over the edge. So uh, they've replaced all of those centers with what they call opportunity centers that are meant to uh, support the development of all of the students without addressing their identity, without addressing the groups that they belong to. Uh, and I really, I think that that is unethical. You know, in the city that I lived in, I lived in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, um, in the K through 12 system, over 50% of the students in that system are, are students of color. They're people of color. And those are students who eventually are going to be in the state institutions. And to eliminate the offices that are meant to celebrate and support and uplift the cultures that these students come from is unethical. It's a deeply unethical decision. So, um, and I, I didn't want to answer the, the question that you sure. asked, you know, I think that if you are so certain about how right you are and, and how right your ideas are, 
then just be willing to put your ideas out there in the marketplace, right? Like let them compete with other narratives, with other histories, with other ideas. You don't need to pass legislation or laws to silence the other side, right? And that's an indication of the fact that you know that you're wrong and that you can't compete. So. It's like being in church, isn't it? <laughs> no, this is, this is wonderful. You should pass a collection plate. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Player, um, legislation that, first of all, when you heard about divisive concepts, <laughs> what did you think? I mean, I think it's really an important question for us to ask is why, especially at the elementary and secondary school levels, is why identify, asking our children to identify more with enslavers than the most vulnerable people in a society, the enslaved, is why, why that's a divisive concept as opposed to having our students um, and our children identify more with enslavers who were the founders of our society, right? And I think that that is something that isn't being talked about enough. I mean, we. Um, critics of CRT are, you know, kind of putting out there that they're trying, you know, these divisive concepts that race is divisive. When you look back at the historical record, I mean, the people who were creating this country to be an exclusive place, a white supremacist place, were very explicit about race. And so even these critics of CRT are not being true to what the people they purport to venerate were about. And I think that is one of the really frustrating things. And so when you're stifling the curiosity of our children and telling them that there are certain things that they can't talk about or there are certain aspects of their identity that they have to, you know, kind of put aside or that, you know, they making a direct line really between enslavers of the 17th and 18th century to the 21st century, that to me is deeply, deeply problematic. And it's selling our students short. You know, they are interested in kind of learning about the past. And our past is ugly and violent and messy. And that's something that um, schools can be a place for that kind of really deep intellectual exchange. So discussion needs to be encouraged rather than um, labeled as divisive. Absolutely. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation. And we'll also talk about the importance of institutions like the Atlanta History Center, the Center for Civil Human Rights, other entities, and higher education to help correct some of the misconceptions about what critical race theory is and is not. So we'll take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.org. 
greateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And Closer Look continues now, broadcasting live from the Atlanta History Center in Atlanta from WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Thank you all who are watching, streaming, watching us via stream. We appreciate that. And those who are in our audience, we appreciate that as well. Um, Professor West, I want to start with you, come back with you. When we talk about then CRT, because there might be some folks in the audience that don't quite understand what's all this drama about critical race theory. I'm going to ask you, as I've asked people this before, what do folks get wrong about what critical race theory is? I, I think the thing that they get wrong, uh, number one, is that it's something new. <laughs> um, we've, we've been doing this thing that we label critical race theory uh, for, for some time now. I mean, at its, at its most fundamental level, critical race theory is just asking us to consider how the otherwise ordinary experiences of, of you know, American citizens get complicated um, when we have to consider the matter of race. Uh, so if, you know, if you just think about the, the everyday experience of every citizen navigating our world, um, you know, trying to fly, find employment, trying to get uh, an education, uh, trying to, um, you know, uh, look to the future and plan to the future uh, in a world where technology and economics are making us have to reimagine our whole, whole lives and future. That's, that's, that's everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. Now, add the layer of race to there, and then, and then come talk to me. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, and I can tell you how much more complicated that gets. And what critical race theory is simply asking us uh, to examine is how the matter of race impacts uh, black people, people of color, uh, minoritized populations, to put them at disadvantages in a system that we presume uh, is otherwise equal. So uh, again, there's nothing magical or new about critical race theory. Um, I've, I've taught it. Um, uh, I, in, in fact, when I was, you know, trained as a PhD candidate in my field of study, uh, we, it, it wasn't called critical race theory. <laughs> it was just called uh, getting an education. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I, you know, I, again, I think what we have to really do is just get back to the ground level of really acknowledging what constitutes knowledge. You know, do we want to facilitate knowledge or do we want to facilitate people's myths? And, and, and we need to distinguish between the two. Mm -hmm. Dr. Chandler, you have taught critical race theory too, correct? I have, yes. Yeah. What do people get wrong about it? <laughs> um, 
So, I, I, first of all, I, I wholly reject the way that it is being defined currently in, in public conversation. I think the people who are the most upset about it and talking about it most frequently have no idea what it is, right? They're using it as a proxy for conversations that they just don't want to have. Um, and so, so, I, so I guess I don't, I don't enter the conversation from that point. Sure. And, and I also think that as a historian, as an African-American historian, um, you know, the field of African-American history has been asking these types of questions for a very, very long time. I mean, even prior to, to CRT. And so, you know, I, I think that it's really important um, that, we're, that we're more critical about the things that people um, are, um, are trying to silence and trying to shut down, especially with higher education. I mean, it's, it is important that students come into that space, that they're presented with new ideas, that they're uh, presented with the diversity of perspectives and lived experiences. Um, and we know that that's, that's key to student success within college, and, and it's key to the success that they have uh, once they leave and once they graduate. I want to stick with you for a moment because there was actually a, a, a state lawmaker that had requested Georgia's border regions, they wanted to know what professors were teaching, anything remotely related to, to race and, and, again, critical race theory or, or divisive concepts, mm -hmm. and they wanted to know, you know, what speakers were going to be coming and, and who these professors were going to be bringing into the classroom. You all are at that level. What do you make of that type of movement? Okay, we understand we don't like it. We understand when folks say elementary kindergarten, which CRT is not taught. But then when you get to college, when you get to the higher education, now you have lawmakers wanting to know what you're teaching, what book you're teaching from, who you bring in as speakers. Mm -hmm. That's got to be... Yeah, so I, I don't think that uh, lawmakers know anything about what it takes to help students succeed in college. And I think they... <laughs> I, I think they should do their job, and, and I think that they should leave the job of, of higher education to those who are committed to it and to the professionals within that field. Um, I think that to come into the classroom, I mean, there, there are real academic freedom in, you know, issues and, and, and questions within this, but um, it's not their lane, you know? And I, and I think to, to accuse other people of being ideological um, and, and politically driven when actually that's what they're doing, mm -hmm. um, you know, I just, they, they should stay out of the conversation entirely. Some of the lawmakers are members of WABE. I hope they just do. <laughs> 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 My CEO, Jennifer Dorn, is here. I'm sorry. I, you know. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> And, and that's what a, a, an accomplice looks like, someone that got your support. <laughs> exactly. Professor Player, um, lawmakers want to know what y'all doing over there at Georgia State. I mean, I think it's just thinking about it from the perspective of somebody who cares about educating my students. Um, I want and I strive to create um, an environment in which students can ask questions regardless of the background that they come from and kind of understanding how we all got to this space and that that is a really important like process of learning um, that I think these you know kind of initiatives to that are anti-CRT are mischaracterizing what it is and are kind of trying to control process in a way that 
does an incredible disservice to not only the professionals who have you know, dedicated years of service to the profession, um, but also students. I mean, I think in these last few years, as these issues have become you know, more in um, the forefront of our public conversations, I mean, I've had a lot of students from a variety of backgrounds who have said, I'm glad that we're having these conversations. I want to be able to be able to think about how I can respond to people who come at them with really ignorant um, questions or um, or ideological, you know, kind of statements. They want those tools and they're looking to us as professionals inside the classroom to be able to help them learn how to navigate the world that we have all inherited. And U.S. history is incredibly complicated and has a racist history and present um, and is really, you know, kind of forces us to deal with these issues. And I think students are, are ready for it. And I think they're capable of asking questions and learning to live in a diverse society because that's what we have. Mm -hmm. So help students be better citizens. And that's not kind of towing one ideological line. That is helping them become critical thinkers. Let's go back then a little bit. Is there an age that you think it is appropriate to start talking about this nation's ugly truths? I think from the beginning. Yeah. I think from the beginning because our students, our students, our children see diversity. They have questions. So don't stymie those questions, you know, or ignore or silence those questions because that does a disservice to, um, to future generations. I mean, because they're, they're ready to try and figure out how we got here, why people look different from them, why there are class differences. And I think that they can ask more honest questions and are ready for more honest answers than some of the adults. What do you say to some people, and I've had this conversation with parents who said, slavery is just too difficult, too challenging for me to talk to my six-year-old about. Dr. Chan, what do you think? I mean, imagine if that was your history, like personally, right? Like if that was your lived experience. I, I mean, one thing that I, I tell my students is that you know, liberation and freedom are not metaphors when you're talking about black people. They're not analogies. This is very much a part of who we are and who our, what our lived experience has been in this country. Um, and so the, the, you know, all of this, talking about Juneteenth and about race and, and whether it's critical race theory or something else, I mean, this is all a part of being seen and being valued and, and whose histories we, we value and, and who's represented and who's doing the representing. Um, and there's a lot of power in that. Um, and, and I agree with Dr. Player. I mean, this is something that should begin very early, right? Um, we are, all of us in this room, we are bombarded with messages that are racist, that are sexist, that are patriarchal, uh, that are homophobic, that are transphobic. I mean, every day of our lives, right? Whether you recognize it or not. Um, and it's, it's important, we all have a responsibility to interrupt that cycle, right? Because something that begins as a joke or a stereotype or an insensitive remark, eventually that becomes a belief, it becomes a worldview, it becomes a framework uh, for violence and for marginalization. 
And so knowing that that is how race works in this country, that's how oppression works in this country, we have to start these conversations very early so that young people are equipped to stop this cycle of oppression. Yeah. Yeah. Professor West. A while ago, you talked about, you learned about Juneteenth in your community. You know, I remember my dad giving me, a, I wanted a football, but he gave me a book by Langston Hughes. <laughs> I'm like, dude, what are you doing? I wanted a football. And read the book. I, I got the football later, but community is so important. Can you talk about the importance of community and also expectations from institutions like this? Atlanta History Center and other institutions to be a part of reaching out to the community, helping tell the accurate story. I, I think, and in, in, in fact, I've learned this from uh, my own research that I've been uh, in the weeds on for the, the past six years. Um, and in these past six years of, of my current project, I've really come to understand why these kinds of institutions are so important. I've, I've, I've been in, um, you know, archival centers. I've, I've been in courtroom houses uh, where, you know, I've had to have just everyday uh, court folks uh, in small towns uh, lead me to, to, to documents. And, it's important. These are, these, these are where records are held that help us, again, to tell that full story. Uh, be, before, um, uh, again, before I really took this journey on my current um, project, um, I was always uh, annoyed professionally with the continued message that students get in the classroom that we can't, um, you know, we, we can't really go into much detail about African Americans uh, during enslavement because we just don't have the records. You know, there's just, there's just not information out there to tell us. Well, that's not accurate. There's all kinds of information out there, even when they aren't named. Even when they, um, you know, are not acknowledged, the information is there, and I, um, you know, I've just been really grateful. Um, um, I don't know. I, I can't say that this has been intentional on the part of our country, because you know, perhaps a hundred years ago, if they knew people would be combing through the archives, finding what they're finding now, maybe they would not have held on to, <laughs> <laughs> to these documents. <laughs> But um, but uh, this this kind of you know these kinds of institutions are important for us to go you know to go back and really to fill out those you know those large holes in our the larger puzzle that constitutes who we are. And we're going to tell you in just a moment what kind of programming will be taking place here at the Atlanta History Center this weekend for Juneteenth. And as we welcome those guests to the stage, I want you all to take a couple of minutes to your own personal reflection in terms of Juneteenth and what you hope people, again, we're not telling you what to think or how to think, but what you hope people understand about this federal holiday and in all the history surrounding it. I think it gives us an opportunity to have more conversations like this, you know, um, to think about 
the complicated nature of U.S. history, the centrality of African Americans to U.S. history, the centrality of slavery and the quest for freedom to U.S. history. Um, and I'm hopeful that schools can continue to be a place where those conversations can take place. Um, that centers like the Atlanta History Center and other archival centers can um, be a space for uh, making those connections with the larger community. And for me, Juneteenth is an ideal American holiday for that reason, because it really kind of captures the, the essence of the, the challenges that we face as, as a nation um, and one in diversity. Thank you. Dr. Chen? So I, I think representation matters. I think access matters. And um, you know, a space like this, it, it, it is, it's important that the histories of all of the people of this country, it can't just be specialized knowledge, right? It can't just be knowledge that you access in an Ivy Tower, right? Or, or from you know, some elite institution. It needs to be available and accessible to everyone. Uh, and I think about you know, my own experience in college and in graduate school, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And when I was working on um, my dissertation, I remember my grandmother, who, who has passed on now, but she told me that she wanted to read my dissertation. And so that was something that I kept in mind as I was writing, right? That, that of course, I'm writing to my committee, which I have to do. Um, but I'm also thinking about the impact that what the work that I'm doing has on my family and my community and all of the people that I come into contact with. Um, one of the things that I, I love most about Juneteenth, I think it's an incredibly important holiday. Um, and I think it's a moment that um, really brings us closer to uniting the ideals that we profess as a nation um, with what we do um, and, and, and how we act as a people. So um, I, I'm also appreciative of spaces like this to talk about it. All right, Professor West, you'll get the last word. The, uh, on a, on a very personal level, Juneteenth uh, is so important to me because it simply reminds me uh, of the deep resilience of black people, of how in the worst of circumstances, you know, because like who, who celebrates that they spent two years uh, you know, enslaved before they found out they were they were free, and I'm that's I'm, I'm being humorous gotcha. in a way mm -hmm. on that. Um, you celebrated because you have survived, and that instead of looking back, you take that moment and you look forward, and you create joy out of it. Um, I believe the history of black people in this country has been a historical example of how to create joy, how to find joy, how to love each other in some of the worst circumstances. And it's these kind of moments, a moment like Juneteenth, uh, that calls on us to just take a second and, uh, and remember that. All right, amen. <laughs> We've got about five minutes, but I want to let you all know what is taking place this weekend at the Atlanta History Center. I want to bring out uh, Christian Witherspoon, who's the Vice President of Digital Storytelling, and Shatavia Elder, who's Vice President of Education. So y'all have it. you got four minutes. Go. <laughs> <laughs>
First of all, thank you so much for bringing this really important conversation here to the History Center ahead of Juneteenth. Um, and yeah, go ahead. So All right. Uh, hi, my name is Shatavia Elder. Um, this year, we're excited to bring back our Juneteenth uh, programming in person here at the History Center. Um, after two years, of course, we are thrilled. And also, our program is funded, generously funded by the Nissan Foundation. I do want to make sure we acknowledge that. Um, our programming this year really steeps into the origins of, uh, up origins of Juneteenth and also stems through the emancipation as well. We have uh, programming for families of all ages. Uh, we start with a lot of digital storytelling um, in addition to museum theater pieces, educational components. Um, we pretty much take you through the entire campus and Chris can tell you a little bit more about that. Absolutely, the, um, the celebration truly spans the entire campus with curated experience, ex experiences, storytelling. Um, but more importantly for us um, here at the History Center, Juneteenth, uh, we are part of a civics and history collaborative um, called the Civic Season. And the Civic Season really intentionally connects um, the holiday Juneteenth to July 4th and encourages civic engagement um, in ages 18 through 30. And so that is a really important initiative for us here at the History Center. And we are really excited to open up the campus um, to folks within the community to come and be um, engaged and um, enjoy the day with us on Sunday. And it's free. It's free. It's free. It's totally free. <laughs> Bring your families you buried, out. You buried the lead. It is free. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> and we hope that you all will take advantage of that. I'll be out here this Sunday being educated because that's what you all are here for. First of all, thank you so much to Atlanta History Center. Thank you so much to Georgia State, to Oglethorpe. Professor Player, Dr. Chandler, Professor West. I couldn't think of a better panel to have on. We're, we're going to come back next year. So we'll be back next year, right? Uh, CEO Sheffield going to be right? All right. <laughs> it's going to be free again next year, right? <laughs> the whole week is going to be free. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much for being part of Closer Look Live, first ever live broadcast. Thank you so much. Uh, and, and we have a reception. We also have an extra added bonus, because if you think our history is something, we're going to teach you about Canada's Emancipation Day, which they just recognized for the first time last year. So that's going to be interesting, too. So that's in the fireside chat, which will take place in about 20 minutes. But we have a reception, so please stick around for that. Thank you all so much. Thank you all so much. On behalf of WABE. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A big thanks to the entire Atlanta History Center staff, also the Canadian Consulate, our WABE multi-platform team, our WABE digital team, and our WABE marketing and communications team. Closer Look producers, Daniel Razel, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and intern Lennox Johnson. Our engineers, Kevin Rinker and Richard Firth. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. 
And if you missed any of today's special broadcast, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And you can catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE broadcasting live from the Atlanta History Center. I'm Rose Scott. wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts.